Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 7 And then she says, I have come ready for all your questions till you're satisfied. And he said, well, since you put it that way, he has a couple of questions. He says, line 85, The water and the murmuring forest contend in me against the recent credence I gave to words denying their existence. In Canto 21, he was told that there is no weather in purgatory, that all the weather takes place on the other side of the gate, the purgatorial gate. And now he notices two things. He notices a gentle breeze, and he notices running water. If there's no weather, there is no stirring of the air, and there is no rain to get water, where, from whence cometh these things, he said. Now, is Dante going to give us a little meteorological uh, explanation of things at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain? No, what he's trying to say symbolically is something about this same transition that Matilda's trying to educate him to. So here's her explanation, beginning line 97. Below this mountain, land and water vapors, which follow heat as far as they are able, produce their perturbations. To prevent them from molesting men placed here, this mountain rose up close to heaven, this close to heaven. From the point where its gate locks, it's free of such disturbance. Now, since all of the atmosphere revolves... I won't even read this. It's so complicated. I'll have to paraphrase it anyway. What she then goes on to say is the top of the purgatorial mountain is so high that it actually protrudes into those great celestial spheres, which will be Dante's... Uh, it will be the place in which Dante will journey in the Paradiso. And it is already high enough to be, uh, to be influenced by these great cosmic tides that they have nothing to do with the weather down on the earth, but some kind of archetypal sweep that can be felt. And so this little gentle breeze, which is in motion without agitation, is not weather. It's the, it's the movement of the, of, of the air in the earthly paradise that is in concert with these great tidal motions of the cosmos, which are not, which are in harmonic motion, not in contention. Okay? What that is saying, I think, metaphorically, is it says it's something about emotional life. The affects, if I can suggest this as as an interpretation, the affects are left behind. The if we could use the word emotion here in a pejorative sense, the word emotion etymologically means to move from. It really means to flee. To, to motion, e, comes from x, meaning to get, to flee. So in the etymological sense, an emotion is a fleeing from something. Even though it might seem like a, a going towards something, it's fleeing something. What I'm, I think what Dante is saying symbolically is that the psychological affects or the emotionalities that are part of that contentious world on the other side of the purgatorial gate in which the forces are always contending, a kind of melodramatic weather, 
the storminess, that's there. And there's none of that at all in the purgatorial place. And then when, when one gets to the paradisal, the earthly paradise, then this other thing begins to happen. One has to go through a period of, uh, the, in a sense, the, the emotionally uh, aesthetic period of not, none of that. And then one gets to the earthly paradise, and then one finally discovers, after the, that kind of surface emotion has been left behind, one discovers deep feeling. A deep feeling that, had, that is harmonious with something else. It's not a product of that contention. Some other kind of thing. And this is what Dante has to learn. These things are happening in him which correspond to, the, to weather, that he knows about weather. And he says, hey, is there weather here? He's not just talking about the wind and the water. He's talking about this emotional upheaval in his own... He says, hey, this seems like there's weather here again. Huh? And she says, no, it's this deep... I think this is what I'm saying, this deep feeling. It's different. It's different. It's, it's similar in a way. It can be mistaken for it, or it can be... But it's different. And then he says, well, how about the water? She, she goes on to say, she tells him about the water. Likewise with the water. The point is, it is, not a, it is not a product of these contending forces, the blind cyclical forces of, of evaporation, condensation, precipitation, etc., etc. This is something coming out of the will of God. And then she talks about the two rivers. On this side, it descends with power to end one, one's memory of sin. On the other, it can restore recall of each good deed. To one side, it is lethe. On the other, unui. Neither stream is efficacious unless the other's waters have been tasted. Their savor is above all other sweetness. Now, we have to speak of this... Um, Lethe and Unui, this is one of Dante's, I think, supreme creations. He probably created the idea of Unui. He may have gotten it from a classical source, but if so, that source is lost. Lethe is a classical uh, notion that's familiar. It is the river of oblivion, the river of forgetfulness. Now, Dante understands that to get into paradise, one has to drink of both the river of forgetfulness and the river of remembrance. And... One ends the memory of sin and the other restores the memory of good deeds. I would like to suggest, and there is at least scant textual evidence for this, uh, that it might be best to understand it this way. Dante says it has the power to end the memory of sin. And if you think of sin not as little things one has done, but as, ego, as egohood in, in a general sense, as, as one thing and not as a bunch of little things, I would suggest that the river Lethe is, can cause us to forget it all. Forget not in the literal sense, but in the sense that Aquinas said at the end of his life, even though he wrote the Summa Theologica, it's all straw. That one has to, at the moment of, uh, when it's time to make the great transition to enter finally the paradisal state, one has to realize it's all been straw. And then one drinks, and that's the lethe, 
And that is forgetting all of that as being significant. And then one drinks of Unoe. And likewise, it's everything. And the experience of drinking Unoe is, I wouldn't change a thing. And that, those are the two requirements for getting into paradise. It's all straw, and I wouldn't change a thing. And Dante says, you have to drink them both. If you drink only one of them, it won't work. If you think, I wouldn't change a thing, you miss it. If you say, it's all straw, you miss it. It takes both. I'd like to give an example. The word aletheia, is, as you know, we talked about it before, means it's the word for truth in Greek. It means to stop forgetting. Ah, lethe, to stop forgetting. <clears throat> and so lethe is not only to forget, but to forget the habits by which we have forgotten so much of what we've forgotten. I like to read a little poem, another Richard Wilbur poem, um, which it's taken me all week to get a sense of why, why I've been reading this poem to the classes all week and I haven't understood. I've said, I've said to them, I don't know why I'm reading this poem to you. I think I know why I'm reading it today. But um, you may correct me when we're finished. Um, the poem is entitled In the Smoking Car, and I think this is a story of somebody who drank Lethe without drinking Unoy. The first three words of the poem are, The eyelids meet. And I think that's hilarious. Uh, because we know, and, and R uh, Richard Wilbur, uh, you know, I, I think he knows, and he's cagey, it's supposed to be the eyes meet. But in this poem, it's the eyelids that meet, namely the top one and the bottom one. <laughs> okay, so this is the river of Lethe. The eyelids meet. He'll catch a little nap. The grizzled, crew-cut head drops to his chest. It shakes above the briefcase on his lap. Close voices breathe. Poor sweet, he did his best. Poor sweet, poor sweet, the bird-hushed glades repeat through which in quiet pomp his litter goes, carried by native girls with naked feet. A sighing stream concurs in his repose. There's Leafy for you. Could he but think he might recall to mind? He might drink, you know, you see. Could he but think he might recall to mind the righteous mutiny or sudden gale that beached him here, the dear ones left behind. So near the ending, he forgets the tale. Lethe only, see. Were he to lift his eyelids now, he might behold his maiden porters brown and bare. But even here he has no appetite. It is enough to know that they are there. Enough that now a honeyed music swells, the gentle mossed declivities begin, and the whole air is full of flower smells. Failure, the longed-for valley, takes him in. Isn't that a beautiful poem? That's why I think Lethe has to do with its all straw more than just forgetfulness. And uh, the great theologian, Garrison Keillor, was giving this talk about fishing on the, out there fishing uh, on the ice, uh, as he does, and he talked about how uh, 
uh, it's time to think about think over one's life and think about one's sins and also to think about uh, those uh, strange virtues which uh, how was it that the, the sins that they, they weren't so much sins as virtues who took the other way around and you know if we if we discover that about our sins then we look back on them and we say I wouldn't change a thing there are two pageants on either side of the encounter between Dante and Beatrice. The first pa- both are allegories. The first is an allegory of the Judeo-Christian revelation as it fundamentally is, or in another way, it is an allegory of the church as it should be. And the second is an allegory of the church as it is in Dante's day. And it is a, a, this procession of great grandeur that Dante witnesses coming out of the woods. And uh, towards the end of the parade is the great uh, chariot drawn by the griffin. And the chariot is the church, and the griffin is the Christ. Finally, there is this culmination, dramatic culmination. When the chariot stood facing me, I heard a bolt of thunder, and it seemed to block the path of that good company, which, which halted there its emblems in the lead. Dante taking his hint from Aquinas, in using that thunderclap is talking about the moment, as Aquinas saw it, the thunderclap symbolic of the moment when there is about to be an unveiling. But there is in the beginning of the canto another hint of that unveiling. And if we return now to the first lines of the canto, we might get a, 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 a better picture of it. First of all, we, we're told that Matilda is singing like an enamored woman. And then he talks about, he likens her to a nymph, again this idea of the nymph being the one that awakens desire just as nymphs if I'll, I'll rephrase it slightly there are just as nymphs who used to walk al- alone among the woodland shadows some desiring to see the sun and some desiring to flee the sun she walked there and the question the, the notion is that there this the function of the nymph is to awaken desire and once that desire is awakened we may find that it causes us to flee the sun into delusion or to seek the sun into reality itself, into revelation. And so we want to know whether Matilda is going to be one or the other, and we find out immediately that she follows the river and turns and faces east, and it is morning. So she is one who's going to seek the sun. And she tells Dante to look, listen, and by implication, to wait patiently. And Dante, uh, out of the blue, says... A just indignation made me rebuke the arrogance of Eve because where earth and heaven were obedient, a solitary woman just created found any veil at all beyond endurance. And this, I think, is a reference to the veil of not knowing. And Dante is not... There's none of this in Scripture. He's ta- he, this is his imposition on the story, and he is saying the fall consists of Eve refusing to allow the, the mystery to be veiled and the snatching away of that veil. And it is the veil of not knowing or the veil of mystery. And by lifting the veil, and this I would like to this is my elaboration on it a little bit, but by lifting the veil, she and Adam discover self-consciousness. And the byproduct of self-consciousness is self-consciousness, which is to say, feeling self-conscious. And they try to deal with the byproduct of self-consciousness, which is self-consciousness, by putting on a fig leaf apron. And it doesn't work. And there is still self-consciousness. And the ages after, particularly our own, tries to 
get move out of that awkward self-consciousness into something more spontaneous and alive by doing the only thing they can think of, which is removing the apron. And Dante is suggesting that the problem will not be solved by removing the apron, but by restoring the veil, restoring the mystery. Richard Wilbur says, what's lightly hid is deepest understood. I think Canto 30 and 31 of the Purgatorio will be being read a thousand years from now because I think it is in Cantos 30 and 31 that Dante uh, alludes to what became his major discovery. And it is not a major discovery really just of Dante, but it is the beginning discovery in the Western psyche of something. And Dante made the discovery the only way a discovery can be made, and that is by making a commitment. And these two cantos, I think, depict uh, the outlines of that commitment and that discovery. The people reading it a thousand years from now are likely to understand that discovery far better than we do, in, in the same way that we understand it somewhat better than the 14th century did. Uh, very briefly, as we start Canto 30, after an introduction, symbolic introduction, there are uh, some quick references, thematic references. The first is someone sings, Vene sponsa di Libano. Come, my spouse from Lebanon. Come, my spouse from Lebanon. Out of the Old Testament tradition of calling being called out of captivity. The spouse, of course, is the people of Israel. But we're, ha we're now talking spouse in a spiritual sense. And we're expecting, remember Canto 29 ended that with that great sense of expectation and now we're expecting the arrival of this sponsa. And then there's a reference to the second coming. Dante says, just as the blessed at the final summons will rise up and so on and so forth. So, the, so it is, has the tonality of, to it of the second coming in the Christian sense. And then a hundred of those present in this great pageant sing out, Blessed you who come. So all of this about what is coming, the second coming, coming out of captivity, blessed you who come, which is, comes from Matthew's uh, story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So the first thing we get is like three waves hitting the beach of this theme of Something coming, something coming, something coming. And then the text says, And scattering flowers upward and around, Monibus odate lilia plinis, With full hands give lilies. That's, that's what that line means. With full hands give lilies. And without us even realizing it, we experience after those three waves of this sense of something arriving, we get this undertow of something departing. Because that line is a line from Virgil's Aeneid, Book 6, in which Virgil has gone to the underworld to speak with his, his dead father Anchises, and Anchises is trying to tell him, he's trying to encourage him to perform the great work of founding Rome. And he's trying to tell him, the hist by pro prophetic insight, tell him the future history of Rome and its greatness. 
but he's also bound to tell the truth. But the truth is, this is Virgil writing the poem, the truth is that it's not all that it's described as. And there is this hint of that in several places in, in Casey's uh, presentation to, to Aeneas. But this has to do with Marcellus, who was to be the great hope, the great new emperor. And he died early, and all the hopes perished with him. And then Caesar says, speaking as though he's speaking to Marcellus himself, O boy whom we lament, if only you could break the bonds of fate and be Marcellus. With full hands give me lilies. Let me scatter these purple flowers. With these gifts at least be generous to my descendant's spirit. Complete this service, although it be useless. So, after this sense of expectation, there is this note of, of something departing, which is Virgil. The great Roman is now not Marcellus, but Virgil. And there is a sense in the poem, not in Dante the Pilgrim, but in the poem itself, there is this, this other theme that sounded of something receding. And he sees this brilliant sight, which is the woman that we've all been waiting for. A woman showed herself to me. And she is associated because of the colors of her garments and so on with the three theological virtues, white, green, and red. And Dante says, within her, this is line 34 and following, within her presence, I had once been used to feeling, trembling, wonder, dissolution, but that was long ago. Still, though my soul, now she was veiled, could not see her directly, by way of hidden force that she could move, I felt the mighty power of old love. We can't really get a grip on what Dante is talking about here unless we can feel that feeling. I felt the mighty power of old love. The kind of transformation Dante's talking about requires an enormous amount of energy. And uh, one of the curious things about it, of course, always is where are you going to get the energy? And uh, we, have to, we have to feel that source of energy. I felt the mighty power of old love. In other words, in his adult life, he received from the Beatrician image an existential shock comparable to the one that he received as an adolescent when he looked at her walking down the streets of Florence. And it is now the, the mighty power of old love. He doesn't say, I got in touch with the mighty power of love. He said, I experienced the mighty power of old love. That's a different thing. Antico amor. And the homework assignment for this week is to write a thousand-word paper on the difference between amor and antico amor. There is a difference. That antico amor has lain in the unconscious psyche for some time. And when it comes up, it comes up with, with all of the... With all of the uh, power and disorientation of its first manifestation, but in addition to that, all of these great, deep spiritual longings that one's whole life has laid 
down into the psyche. Charles Williams said, says, Eros is often our salvation from a false agape, as agape is from tyrannical Eros. Agape is this notion of Christian love. I think it's probably, too, the distinction between Eros and agape is too overdone. Uh, but in any case, uh, Eros can save us from a false agape, as agape can from a tyrannical Eros. So we had to feel the power of old love. And then Dante, line 43, I turned around and to my left just as a child, afraid or in distress, will hurry to his mother. The mother-father thing finally comes to conclusion in this canto. Dante has been calling, in the, in the Inferno he referred to Virgil symbolically as mother a time or two. In the Purgatorio it's been increasingly as father. And now he turns to see Virgil, to consult Virgil, as a child turns to his mother. That is to say, he still returns to Virgil, but, but the poem is saying it, something else is happening. The feminine has now come into that place. Anxiously to say to Virgil, I am left with less than one drop of my blood that does not tremble. I recognize the signs of the old flame. And again, the line puts us in touch with the undertow of the poem. That line, I recognize the signs of the old flame, comes from book four of the Aeneid. And it's not the only reference to this story in here of, of Dido and Aeneas. Aeneas has to leave Dido. At least that's how the Aeneid is played out. And in order to do the great historical work, he has to leave the woman behind. And Dante is the one who faces the great historical work by refusing to leave the woman behind, at least emotionally and spiritually. And it's interesting that he refers back to this story because this is that line comes from as Dido is about to come apart psychologically and finally end in suicide, her collapse begins very gently in a way and she's speaking to Anna, her sister, and she says, Aeneas is the only man to move my feelings, to overturn my shifting heart. I know too well the signs of the old flame. And uh, she comes apart. She falls apart. Now, in a few minutes, Dante's going to fall apart. So Dante is likening himself to Dido at the very moment that he is about to meet Beatrice, whereas Dido is having these feelings at the moment that she is losing Aeneas. And that is because there is an undertow in here, which is that what's about to happen is going to be for Dante finally not only a reunion but a separation. And he's shocked to find that Virgil is not there, but Virgil had deprived us of himself. Virgil, the gentlest father, Virgil, he to whom I gave myself for my salvation. And, and even all our ancient mother lost was not enough to keep my cheeks, though washed with dew, from darkening again with tears. It's a great crisis for him that Virgil is now gone. It doesn't come out quite as strongly in this translation as in some others. But it's a tremendous crisis. I'd like to just pause and reflect on it. If this is a little abstract, but I, but I think it might be it's an appropriate time to do it. I'd like to paraphrase something that, or, or well, paraphrase in a way something Owen Barfield said about logic. 
And I would like to suggest that what he said about logic is even truer about reason. Virgil, of course, is much more than just simply the personification of reason, but in many ways he is the personification of that kind of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from reason. And to the extent that that is true, and and now Dante is forced to make this transference of his allegiance, what, what I was reminded of is this passage in Owen Barfield's writings where he says, the purpose of logic, and I'm going to change it around so it's the purpose of reason, is not to add to the sum of knowledge, but to engender subjectivity. And once subjectivity has been engendered, then it has no other fundamental purpose except to prevent a relapse. That is to say, to prevent a collapse into, to prevent the recollectivization of the psyche. That's, it's, it's there simply as a bulwark after it has done its work. Its original work is to create, Barfield says subjectivity, what I would suggest is to create individuality. Reason aids us in becoming individual. That is to say, we begin to see our lives and have a relationship to our lives and, and uh, reg- not only live, but have a relationship to our life. So that I have an examined life. An individual might be one who has an examined life. A life that has been reflected on is an individual. But one doesn't become, if I can make these distinctions, one, that individual doesn't become a person in the deepest sense of that term until he makes a commitment to something other than himself. And that's the transition, I think, psychologically between Virgil and Beatrice. Virgil has caused Dante, he has has urged Dante to do that preliminary work of gathering his, his life up into what could be called an individual life, a reflected life, a life that is examined. And now it's time for Dante to make a commitment. And it's, and then he becomes not an individual, but this other thing that is, that is ever so much more profound than an individual, namely a person who has made a commitment. First word out of Beatrice's mouth, Dante. Now this is, uh, you're not supposed to write your own name in the middle of the poem as part of the, you know, the unspoken rules. And Dante apologizes for it. He says, I had to because that's what she said. I had to put it in there because that's what she said. Uh, Dante, though Virgil's leaving you, do not weep, do not weep yet. You'll need your tears for what another sword must yet inflict. And then you get the first cold blast of what's going to be a very icy few minutes. Uh, and it is a total shock to Dante. Here's the passage I want to spend a little time on. The line 73, Look here, for I am Beatrice, I am. This, uh, as in other great texts, sometimes the fact that there are lingering textual uncertainties 
indicates that there, there are profound questions uh, that uh, one cannot resolve without committing oneself one way or another. And so even the so-called uh, literary scientists who go to these texts finally can't solve it. And there is in this line, I am Beatrice, I am. Some of the original texts have been son, which is the singular, I am. And some have been sem, which is the plural, we are, which is to say it's the royal plural. We are, that's the way the queen speaks, or the king speaks. And so just at that level you have a tension. First of all, the, the, the term is repeated twice in any case. And the tension, I think, is the following one. It has to do with the mystery of the incarnation which Dante is exploring in these cantos. When Beatrice says, I am, she means, I am Beatrice Portinari, the lovely young woman who died prematurely in 1290 in Florence. And she also says, we are Beatrice. We are, in the sense that the, when the queen says we are, she means not only am I a human being and I, but we are in the sense that I am an archetype in which we all share so that I stand before you as an archetypal presence. And it's only appropriate that one speaks the plural in, under those circumstances. It's, it's also a it's also a palliative to prevent getting, uh, you know, getting inflated. If you can remember to say "we are," then it reminds you that you yeah, that you're drawing up out of that great archetypal resource and not just your own personal one. So when Beatrice says, "I am Beatrice," I think she means both, and I think that's one of the reasons there's a lingering textual uncertainty about it. There is also another possibility, which I, I can't accuse Dante of directly, but uh, I'd like to explore it a little bit. If not at the theological level, then at least at the psychological level, which is the I am at the burning bush. Now, in the Paradiso, when Dante uses the I am at the burning bush, he uses another term. He uses subsisto. But, but that aside, I think we can recognize the, now three possibilities for this I am a Beatrice. I am Beatrice of Florence. We are Beatrice who is the archetype. And I am in that sense of I am a place of connection with the Godhead. In this sense, and let me quote to you from um, Sebastian Moore, the English Benedictine. When I succeed in giving expression to my inner loneliness, that is, to why I am lonely, to what I am lonely without, this is what I come up with. I want as my companion an I am who of his, her nature arouses the I am of me. This is the definition of God by the inner loneliness of the human being, a most urgent need of our time. 
So he says, my loneliness, which is, which is the bedrock of human experience, which cannot be solved in the sociological world no matter how hard we try, my fundamental loneliness is a, is a pining away for an I am who of his nature, of her nature, not, not because she thinks I'm cute, but because of his nature, arouses the I am in me. He said, that's what I'm fundamentally lonely for. Given that, I think it's possible to see Beatrice as that third I am as well. Well, then we have to finish what she's saying. Uh, Look here, for I am Beatrice, I am. How were you able to ascend the mountain? Did you not know that man is happy here? We've said many things about happy and happiness over the years, uh, and uh, they all can be affirmed. But at this point in the Purgatorio, that word falls across the path of the poem like a great tree. (laughs) It falls right on Dante. I mean, it is such an intrusion into the poem at this point. One thinks, where did that word come from? Happy? (laughs) And I'm sure it hits, you can tell in the poem, it hits Dante like a two before, right in the forehead. Happy? He says, my lowered eyes caught sight of the clear stream, but when I saw myself reflected there, such shame weighed on my brow, my eyes drew back and toward the grass. So here's the scene. How did you get here? Didn't you know that people here are happy? And when he hears that word happy, he drops his eyes and sees himself and looks away. Now, imagine yourself going blithely along, all your projects, all your li- all the agendas, everything's happening, and it's working out reasonably well, and you know things are getting done, and it's all la da 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 da. And you run into somebody, and they look, cock their head and they look at you, and they say, "Well, yeah, but are you happy?" And it's like a trap door underneath you falls out, and you think, "Hmm." Now that you put it that way. And then he says, just as a mother seems harsh to her child, and he talks about stern pity. What he's getting a dose of is stern pity. But the angels who are thereabouts take Dante's side in this. They sing, In te domine speravi, which is, In you, Lord, I have hoped, which the, what he's really referring to is the essence of that, which is Psalm 31. The, the key line in Psalm 31 is, Let me not be disgraced or shamed. And so the angels are saying, they're reminding Beatrice, they're saying, hey, this is, the, the, you know, earthly paradise. That seems a little heavy for earthly paradise, wouldn't you say? Uh, there's no use shaming somebody here. Uh, and Dante says, even as snow among sap-filled trees, remember, since sap-filled trees, everything was spring in Canto 28 and 29. Spring and lovely and all of that. And now he says, snow among sap-filled trees, like a, a sudden late spring winter storm. Uh, as snow among sap-filled trees along the spine of Italy will freeze when gripped by gusts of the Slavonian winds, then as it melts will trickle through itself, that is if winds breathe north from shadeless lands, 
Just as beneath the flame the candle melts, so I, before I'd heard the song, the song of those whose notes always accompany the notes of the eternal spheres, was without tears and sighs. But when I heard the sympathy for me within their gentle harmonies, as if they'd said, Lady, why shame him so? Then did the ice that had restrained my heart become water and breath, and from my breast and through my lips and eyes they issued anguish. Real psychological subtlety here. The anguish of weeping doesn't begin with that cold, critical judgment, that rejection. It begins with a... It, it, it's, it, the onset of the tears is accompanied by a little note of sympathy. Even in ourselves, so often that emotional welling up uh, when, the, when, when, when our eyes fill a little bit, there's always, it's always because there's a little sympathy. And often it is what's called sometimes self-pity, but I think more could be called self-sympathy. Nothing wrong with self-sympathy occasionally. And so often that is what is there at the onset of tears. And now he's weeping. Well, the angels have taken his side and they've said, well, wait a minute, this seems a little... So, th this is classic, Ver Beatrice turns to talk to the angels. Now, Dante is reduced to, to auditing the course here for a while. He, he's not even getting credit. He's just having to sit there and listen in. And so now the angel, she's talking to the angels to try to explain to them why she's being so heavy. She says, you are... Awake in never-ending day, and neither night nor sleep can steal from you one step the world would take along its way. Therefore, I am more concerned that my reply be understood by him who weeps beyond so that his sorrow's measure matches sin. I think what she's saying to them, I think in the 20th century parlance, she would be saying to them, look, you angels <laughs> are pure beings, which is to say you are pure ontology, ontology. Ontology has to do with essential being. You're pure ontology. This guy on the other side of the river is a mixture of ontology and psychology. And these humans would love to get here by skipping the psychological part, but they can't. So it doesn't make any sense to you who don't, you don't have psychologies. It doesn't make any sense to you why I should be so heavy and make him cry and all the rest of it. You don't have a psychology. He does. I have to do it. <laughs> and then she talk, begins to talk about him. In <laughs> there he stands. When young, he, she, she talks about his great gifts, natural gifts. He, when young, was such potentially that any propensity in aid in him would have prodigiously succeeded had he acted. How would you like at the age of uh, late 40s or early 50s uh, to have, you know, the, the, the ultimate uh, adjudicator of these things stand before you and look at you and say, well, you could have done anything. <laughs> you want to crawl off into some hole somewhere. <laughs> The key to all this is what's translated here as young. When he was young, the term is vita nova, 
which is a clear reference to La Vita Nuova, which is his first writing. And the implication is this, uh, more than an implication. When he was writing La Vita Nuova, he was onto it. And then he forgot it. Now we have to understand. La Vita Nuova, remember we talked about this. That's when Dante was a young man. He met Beatrice and all these great stirrings happened in him. He wrote these great romantic poems and he analyzed them. Beatrice died. He had this great crisis when Beatrice died. He walked down the street one day and he looked up in the window and there's this woman looking down on him. She was Doña Gentile, the gentle woman at the window. And he thought to himself, well, maybe I should go to her now that Beatrice is gone. And then he went home and wrote a few poems and said, no, I can't do that. I must stay with this image. And he rejects Doña Gentile in La Vita Nuova. And La Vita Nuova is filled with that kind of... Uh, 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 the impulse. Time passes. The next major work is something called Il Convivio, which is a philosophical track. And in there, he... Now, you have to understand, he's under the influence, I'm going to try to make this brief, he's under the influence of Boethius. He's read Boethius in the meantime. Boethius uh, was imprisoned, he's a Roman philosopher, he was imprisoned, falsely accused of treason, and while in prison, he he writes this this book called The Consolations of Philosophy, and he tells a story of how in prison he is confronted by lady philosophy, and lady philosophy gives him the third degree just as, as... Beatrice does here. And what she accuses Boethius of is listening to the silly poetic muses instead of listening to lady philosophy. Well, it's not as though Dante abandoned everything. He, he didn't at all. But there is a transition here. And he begins almost to apologize for La Vita Nuova. And in the Convivio, the the woman present in the convivio is stated as being lady philosophy and she's called doña gentile so now the gentle lady has come down out of the window and has become lady philosophy and now he's exploring philosophical things and he has abstracted the experience of woman and is philosophy in love with wisdom. His next writing is even worse. It's, well, it's not worse. It's a philosophical... It's, 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 it's a substantive contribution to Western thought, Daemonarchia, which is a, which is a, a philosophical and political uh, an analysis of, of monarchy. The point is, she's saying, and Dante is admitting, because he's writing a poem, that here, at this point in his life, he has to say that it's really La Vita Nuova that had the truth to it. And even though he felt embarrassed by it in those years when one tends to feel embarrassed about those things, he's now to the point where he can say, I'm not embarrassed by it. As a matter of fact, I'm now affirming it in its deeper sense. And that's what I think Beatrice is saying to him. And then she talks about, Beatrice talks about, well, as long as he had me to look at, he was okay, you see. 
As long as I was walking around the streets of Florence, he seemed to, he seemed to get it. But as soon as I was gone, there he was. He was off on some other thing, you know. Canto 30 ends. She's still talking to the angels. The deep design of God would have been broken if Lethe had been crossed and he had drunk such waters but had not discharged the debt of penitence that's paid when tears are shed. I want to talk briefly here about an, an example of this. You, you can tell I'm preparing for Homer in some ways, although I haven't even done the Paradiso yet. Uh, in Book 4 of the Odyssey, Telemachus, uh, who is uh, Odysseus's son, who's looking for his daddy after his daddy hadn't been home from the war in so long, he's told to go to Sparta and see Menelaus. Menelaus is the husband of Helen. Helen was taken by Paris to Troy, and that's why the Trojan War was. Well, now that the, that the Greeks have won and Menelaus has Helen back, he's living in this great elaborate palace in, in uh, Sparta. And Telemachus shows up and he looks, sees a chip off the old block and he reminds everybody of Odysseus and they start telling tales. And they start weeping at telling the tales. When they, tell these, when they begin to remember things, they weep. And the text says, The twinging ache of grief rose up in everyone and Helen of Argos wept the daughter of Zeus, Telemachus and Menelaus wept and tears came to the eyes of Nestor's son. Everybody's weeping. And of course they bring out the wine and the feast. And then Helen, by the way, Helen and Menelaus uh, uh, are not presented here as, they're presented here as how this is going to present them. The text says, but now it entered Helen's mind to drop into the wine that they were drinking an anodyne mild magic of forgetfulness. Whoever drank this mixture in the wine bowl would be incapable of tears that day, though he should lose mother and father both. Now the wine is the thing that causes these great memories to start coming out in the Homeric tradition. And she's added a little anodyne, and the Greek word for what she added is nepenthe. Pente or penthos is sorrow. And nepenthe means no sorrow. It's a little thing called no sorrow. So they can remember it without heartache. And compare this to what's happening with Lethe. To remember it with that. And Ver Beatrice is saying to the angels, he cannot be allowed to drink of Lethe without having heartache. To drink, in other words, to drink of Lethe without feeling sorrow and regret and heartache and remorse is, to, is simply to take another drug. Uh, Canto 31 starts somewhat comically. She's been pointing, the, in a sense, he says, she's been uh, pointing her, the sword of her discourse at these angels and now he says all of a sudden, he said that at the edge of the short, sword was sharp enough and now she points the, turns around and points the point at him. And she says to him, I want you to say yes or no. Is what I just said true about your apostasy and confusion and fear? And he couldn't talk. And he says, finally, he said a yes, but it, had to, it was a yes you could only understand if you could read lips as well as hear. And he broke down. He says, I burst. And tears and sighs poured forth. And she said, she says, in the desire for me that was directing you to love the good beyond which there there's no thing to draw your longing, what chains were strung, what ditches dug across the path? 
that once you'd come upon them caused your loss of any hope of moving forward? What benefits and what allurements were so evident, etc., etc.? Why, she said, what, what were these tremendous barriers? And what were these tremendous seductions? Now, there are two levels of this, I think, to be felt. One is, I think it's possible that, that Beatrice is accusing Dante of having thought the thoughts that the 20th century accuses him of not having thought. Namely, she is accusing him of having thought the 14th century version of, well, maybe it's a projection. Maybe it's a, just a projection. I think there's, there's a circumstantial evidence in these cantos that that's exactly what Dante thought, or some version of it. And now he's being berated by his elder self, in the form of Beatrice here, for having caved in to that to that uh, uh, to that uh, commonplace. The other thing is, she says, why did you, what, what were the things that caused you to cop out in a way? It's as though somebody would say to us, uh, well, I can understand somebody who's six or eight years into the gulag copping out, but uh, what about you? <laughs> or I can understand somebody who's living on the third floor of a cold water flat in the slums of New York, copping out. But uh, what about you? She says, why? What was it? And Dante's answer is, Mandelbaum translates the words, mere appearance. Dante says, mere appearances. But that's not what it really means. It the literal, it literally means present things. But I'm convinced that what it means is, Dante says, what caused him to abandon his most profound experience, namely Beatrice, what caused him to abandon that was what was available. He passes out, and when he wakes up, Matilda, we said last week Matilda is kind of a John the Baptist. Well, there she is, knee-deep in the river Lethe, plunging the old boy in. He wakes up in Matilda's arms, and she plunges him twice, once up to the neck, and then she drags him over to the other shore and plunges him all the way in to, to, to where he has to drink. He has to swallow the water of Lethe. 